I don't have the sheet that tells me what to say here, so I'm just going to say that the passage that we're reading today is Mark 9:38 through 50, and it can be found on page 932 of the Bible next to your seats, as well as on the screen. Five-second pause. <clears throat> Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly be rewarded. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me. Our God of grace, as we um, walk into these doors and we form what looks like to anyone coming in here, a community, even though we may not know very many people here or we may not know very many people here very deeply, or there might be just long time friendships in the room, we come, all of us, um, with a hunch that um, it might be good for us to be here, um, whether we come excited, we got uh, had a good week, or whether we come sad because um, we've experienced some loss or pain, whether we come um, just, just uh, asking questions, asking questions to try to figure some things out, but not really associating ourselves perhaps with a lot of the things that are happening here. We just have questions, we have doubts. And we want to know more, and others of us come, and we have we feel like we we have tons of answers, but maybe we just want passion. And others of us come, and we um, we're in grief, we're in trouble, we're struggling this morning. And in all these places, um, we look to these words to bring us some kind of hope and grace, because as we sit here, um, although our experiences and our journeys may may be different in dramatic ways, the truth is that we're all in the same boat. We're in need of your grace every second of our life, which means we're, we're more broken and we're more flawed than we want other people to know, than we're usually comfortable even admitting to ourselves. Thank you that your grace over and over through the pages of Scripture shows itself to reach into our broken and flawed lives and reaches towards failures, taking on the pain and the alienation that we feel, taking it on yourself, that we might be saved from it. 
and that we might enter into your presence, which we ask you draw us now through these words. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, last few weeks, we have um, been looking at some teachings from the Gospel of Mark. We had a question of the week last week, which uh, I actually left my sheet somewhere else. So I'll just tell you one of the answers. The question of the week was, what is petty? And uh, my favorite answer, the one that I remember, is somebody wrote, Tom. Very simple. Tom Petty. Got it, yeah. Little delay there. Um, There were a couple other answers. Not a lot of answers to that question, but we're looking at a a section of Scripture... um, You may have noticed if you've come the last couple of weeks, and then you'll see in the weeks to come, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapters 8 through 10, that it's this really lovely section of Scripture that's devoted to the legacy of the disciples. (laughs) Because they just keep getting it wrong. They just keep like, just the obvious things that Jesus seems to be teaching, they just seem to not be getting it, and it's the same things over and over. For example, last week we talked about greatness and Jesus' teaching on greatness and he sort of flips it upside down and so um, he, he uses a child to teach about um, greatness in Jesus' view of greatness, that this child, the one who has the least status, should be welcomed um, and that should be the approach of these disciples who were actually have an argument about who's greatest. Um, And so Jesus embraces this child. Now, if you heard that story and you felt really changed by it last week, if you were here and you felt like you've really turned the corner now on your view of greatness and what you think and status and that's transformed your life in any way, in fact, if it even had any impact on you at all, uh, you're way ahead of the disciples, the disciples, because the very next chapter, um, just to give you a sense of this type, this section of scripture, the very next chapter has them um, literally the story told of them rebuking some people. And what are those people doing? Well, they are parents, and they are parents who are bringing their children forward to Jesus to be blessed. And so, again, just two stories earlier is this, you must welcome children as this new way of greatness. And there they are, rebuking the parents who are bringing children forward. So that's the section of Scripture that we're in. And today's gem is that the disciples are proudly reporting to Jesus that they've shut down the ministry of a powerful healer. Uh, Why? Why have they done this? Well, was he against Jesus? Oh, no, no. Was he he opposing them? No. Was he after money? No, it doesn't seem like that was part of it. No. What was the problem? Um, We didn't know him. He wasn't a part of our group. (laughs) So we we took care of that, Jesus. We didn't recognize him. This seems pretty petty, and in fact, think about it this way as we enter into looking at the story. Think about how basically what you have here, and in much of the Gospels, is you have the early church, and in fact, these very leaders that are being talked about, these disciples that became kind of the first phase of leadership in the church after Jesus. You have this whole early movement of Christianity very comfortable, in fact, portraying the leadership as being severely flawed. How does that sit with you? It, it's so much so that it's, it, it, it's clearly intentional. It's clearly done. It's, a, it's, it's all these stories were not only allowed in, but they were a clump together to make the big point. And as we read these stories, 
it's not just about how we tend to look at leaders and we love to, you know, in your job or in politics or whatever. You tend to love to separate yourself and just kind of look at someone in leadership and, and it's easy to throw, you know, throw rocks at them and so forth. It's not a detached looking at these horrible disciples who get it wrong over and over again. I think that we're called and it's meant to be sort of as we read it, we see something in ourselves being exposed. So that's how we look at this. We look at this story of total pettiness in these disciples. We look at our own pettiness. We look at how we fit right in there. And and we need to look at how in our pettiness and our petty concerns, we'll see three things, that there's a danger, there's a failure, and there's a hope. So in our petty concerns, in the little things we get hung up on, there's a danger, there's a failure, and there's a hope. First of all, there's a danger, and that is the danger of harming others. Um, A little over a year ago, I think a year and a half ago, we had a a Sunday here that we called Sunday for the Wounded, and we were collecting stories, and maybe if you remember that Sunday, if you were here, it related to how many stories we run into in starting this church and being in community together, how many stories there are of people who were deeply wounded and hurt by um, other churches, by other Christian leaders. And so we spent a Sunday reflecting on those kinds of stories and trying to process and heal and figure out what reconciliation and forgiveness have to do with all that. Well, it seems like something like that, one of those kinds of stories, is actually what's kind of in the background here. As we look at this, um, we're not told a lot of the background of this, this person, this person that the disciples shut down their work and tried to stop them. We're not told a lot about the background, but let me just do some playful imagining with you about and, and bring some life to it, perhaps. Um, as you look at verse 38, it says, um, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Let's paint the picture. Picture a, an 18-year-old young man, and let's say he has a, has a really deep need in his life. Um, let's say he's, he's paralyzed, and he's been that way for a really long time. And he meets Jesus and he has this experience. And and so we're putting him within the context of a lot of the stories we hear about Jesus. What if this young man was paralyzed and and he comes to Jesus and there's a big crowd and Jesus takes the time to put his hands on him and to say, be healed, get up, walk. And he does. So let's, let's imagine that this is who we're talking about. And that Jesus perhaps says to him as he interacts with him, says something as he sends him on his way like, go, go out and and spread this love and this healing that you've now experienced. Act in my spirit's presence and power. And let's say this person was really timid and um, not a very confident talker, but Jesus' words kind of sit there like this earworm that just kind of keeps working on him. Act in my spirit's power. And let's say at some point soon he meets some other folks that he knew that he maybe used to hang around with a lot who are maybe sick and maybe there's others who are paralyzed or have really troubling diseases going on in their life. And he's talking with them about his experience and one of them asks out of the blue as they're wrapping up and as he's about to go, Will you, would you just pray for me? Would you, you were with Jesus. Would you just pray for me? And it t- imagine it terrifies this young, timid post-paralyzed young man, and yet he does, he, those words of Jesus kind of come back into his mind, and he very timidly and awkwardly and insecurely 
just says a prayer. He doesn't really know what to say, but he makes sure he says, um, to put it kind of in the context, not of him and his not knowing what to do, but of this Jesus. So he says, in the name of Jesus. And, and this person, let's say they had a lifelong disease of some sort, and they're healed. To the great shock and surprise of this young man. And, um, and let's say that as he goes forward, he runs into a blind person and the story repeats itself. And then maybe a few other people start kind of telling their friends and they bring sick people. And one day it's a demon-possessed person that he lays hands on and in the name of Jesus, the demon goes away. And so this starts to happen. This starts to be a regular thing, much to his own surprise. And it's always in the name of Jesus. And so what's happening in this young man, let's just picture it and imagine that what's happening is his faith is in God and in God's activity in this world has never been stronger. He's never been more diligent in prayer, in worship, in giving, in acts of love and kindness to his neighbor. And he's really just experiencing God and God's presence in the the way that he never even thought possible. And he's sharing that with people. And so one day, let's imagine this story that begins our story we just heard, that he's healing somebody, and, he, and, and as things are wrapping up, he lays hands on someone and, and prays in the name of Jesus that a demon would leave this person, and, and, the, and it does. And then he sees, as this is wrapping up, he sees, oh my goodness, there are some of those inner circle people who are with Jesus when I was healed. There's James and John and Andrew and Peter and they're there. And he's bubbling with excitement because he's longed to reconnect and tell the stories and be encouraged and to feel that camaraderie of look at how great God is. Oh my goodness, what's happened? And he sees them coming and he's, he's looking forward to telling them but something's dramatically wrong as they come towards him. The furrowed brows and the yelling begins almost immediately as they come to him. And it's threats and anger and shame and physical intimidation. And then they're gone. Jesus' inner circle people, <laughs> the one who had healed him and given him his life back, the one who, in whose name he was doing this work. I mean, that in, in many ways, that kind of, story of someone's bubbling faith is are exactly the kinds of story. And then the, the, the woundedness from folks who come in some kind of name of church or God or religion, that is a story that is common to me. That is a storyline that I've heard. And that I imagine you have to put some humanity into this to imagine what, why is Jesus then, what is, why does he turn in response to them And he says, and he refers back to children again. Apparently, he's still got this child in his arm that he used as the one to tell this last teaching about welcoming children. And so he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. What is he doing? I think he's he's saying, look at what you're doing. Open your eyes in, in your pettiness to this young sapling of faith, this vulnerable but new and fresh and excited 
person that God is working in and the great harm that you're bringing to this person. I mean, these, these fillers, pillars of faith, basically, as Jesus is saying, he's causing them to stumble. He's booby-trapping the spiritual journey, or they're booby-trapping the spiritual journey of someone who's extraordinarily vulnerable. And so Jesus is trying to open their eyes to this. He's, they're giving this someone the kind of experience that this person would never, could potentially just never come back, never return, Let's just stop this whole thing because it's so hurtful and wrong. And how can he be behind something like this when these disciples are doing stuff like this? Jesus' own first line of leadership. So the first thing to see is that in our pettiness and in our own, and to, see your, to not separate yourself from the story and to see that we're all on a trajectory in a sense or a spectrum of our own pettiness and our own petty concerns and the things that we're so sure of that as we act those out that we're dangerously susceptible to overlooking opportunity to encourage, to help, and to instead bring harm. So there's a, dan- there's a danger in our pettiness. There's also a failure. There's a failure. And the failure that I think is obvious in the story is the failure to see the, or the failure to marvel really at God, to marvel at God's work. There's a, there's a fascinating uh, parallel story that I actually never ran into until this week. A parallel story in Numbers 11, where basically, you might know some of the background on some of these stories, but, but God is dealing with the Israelites, and they're grumbling because they're only having this manna, this miraculous food to eat called manna, as if that, that miracle's not enough, so they're grumbling. They want meat, and so God's actually about to provide them with meat. And in the course of those events, what God does is he tells Moses to bring the 70 elders together and to come to the tent of meeting. And God's going to meet with them. And, um, and then he's going to you know, do this miraculous thing and give them all the meat that they need to eat. Um, so, so what happens is the 70 get together and Moses comes and they go to the tent of meeting and the cloud of God comes. The presence of God is over the tent of meeting. And they all start prophesying, which you could decide probably have a pretty good guess at what that word means or at least as good a guess as anybody else because I, I don't think we really know exactly what that means but basically they were saying and doing things that were clearly attributed to a miraculous presence of god so these 70 elders have been the way the passage puts it is basically god took the share of his spirit that he had put on moses and he spread it out over all these 70 leaders and they're prophesying well Except it's not 70, it's actually 68. Because as the story goes, two of, two of the 70 elders, I don't know if they, they just slept in uh, or what happened, but they, they didn't come. Or you know, if they're playing cards around the campfire, not sure what happened, but two of them didn't come to the tent of meeting. And as the story goes, this report from a young man comes to Moses and says um, their names were Eldad and Medad. Eldad and Medad are in the camp and they're prophesying too. And so Moses, young Moses, who's the protege of, uh, I'm sorry, young Joshua, who's the protege of Moses, says, Joshua says, Moses, my Lord, stop them. You know, let's stop those two who are prophesying in the camp, who, you know, who didn't show up at the tent of meeting like they were supposed to. You know, you can sense that going on there. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? 
I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. It's a fascinatingly parallel exchange to what we're reading here. It seems that part of the story of God and part of the dynamic of humans trying to engage with God and figure these things out, I mean, think about the parable of the vineyard workers and the ones who come for just an hour get paid the same as the ones who work all day, and then so the ones who worked all day are outraged at the, the lavish payment of this farmer. All of these stories put us in the realm of the human fixation that blinds us from what? It doesn't just cause hurt, but also blinds us from seeing the lavishness of God, the lavish outpouring of God that we're meant to see over and over again on these pages of Scripture, all because we're hung up on, what are we hung up on? The, you know, that's, those, those people over there are unsanctioned. You know, those people over there didn't come to the tent of meeting. These people over here are uncredentialed. They're from a different group. Oh, they're not even churchgoers over there. They're undeserving. I don't like them. They're getting away with misbehaving. You know, all of these things. And I wonder how often we miss God's lavish work and his outpouring of his spirit in people because of what? What are the things that we're hung up on? Maybe just because we're, we're so irritated with something about someone that we can't see God at work in their lives. Maybe we're just so in a hurry that we don't see it. Maybe because um, we're focused on personal gain. If we're honest, a lot of the time. Or maybe we're just so focused on our insecurities. In the sense, our blindness is because we're, we've just got so many voices that we're wrestling with and sorting out within ourselves that we're, our eyes aren't open to what God's doing around us. God's wild and free power and grace and love that flows and goes where it wants to go. It almost seems like in some of these stories as if, um, I, don't, I don't know if you caught, but in the story um, where the disciples are shutting down this person's ministry and reporting it to Jesus, there's a lot of talk of being in the name of Jesus. The person was healing in the name of Jesus, and then Jesus talks about being in the name of Jesus. It almost seems as if there can be those who are inside you know, the, the, the God camp, who are not operating in the name of Jesus. There can be those outside the God camp or however you want to look at that who are operating in the name of Jesus. It seems like God has this ability to be working wherever he just darn well pleases to make things blossom and make faith grow and make his love start in someone's life. And I think the more and more that his grace and his love, his wild and free grace and love touches you, the less and less likely you are to be erecting those boundaries and defining where he can work. I wonder if it's possible to think about retraining our eyes to look for God's lavish work around us. Retraining our eyes to see the outpouring of God's grace. To be curious about that rather than fixated on the petty and to be to realize that as the disciples come to Jesus and they've shut down this ministry and they're proud of it, they have not stopped once, it seems from the story, to just marvel over the fact that this one they're following is doing these incredible things, but 
Over here, completely disconnected, outside of Jesus' presence, that same power. This is how amazing Jesus is, is that someone else can just sort of pop up over here and his work can be happening there as well. It's like the disciples ha- have no curiosity or wonderment about that. They've just shut it down. <laughs> it's fascinating. So, and last of all, so there's a danger of our pettiness, there's a failure in our pettiness, and there's also a hope for those stuck on petty concerns. Is there any hope... Is there any hope for us? Is there any hope for a church that's led and founded by leaders of such low spiritual caliber? You know, uh, so petty, so slow to grow. These days we can spot a lot, especially these days, literally these days, these days of this last week, you can spot this, this impulse to look for a perfect spiritual leader in this world. You know, someone to put our hope in. Someone who's visiting the United States (laughs) right now. And Twitter, you know, is blowing up with comments and opinions and praise for Pope Francis. Do you see the flip side of putting so much hope and emphasis in finding a really good, seemingly perfect spiritual leader? kind of sets us up for, I don't know, something not so good. You might find some good for a while. I'm excited about Pope Francis, don't get me wrong. I see a lot of good there too, and I'm not, I don't even see anything I want to criticize. I'm just saying, here we have a book that regularly sets up the flawed and failed leaders. What kind of point is being made? What kind of point is being made? Jesus, well, to get at that point, Jesus says this. Everyone will be salted with fire. In one of the seemingly most cryptic statements Jesus ever made. Everyone will be salted with fire. What is salt? Salt's a preservative. It saves something. So everyone needs to be saved. Everyone needs to be preserved. How are you going to be preserved? With fire. It's actually not that difficult of a concept, but it, it kind of takes some staring at it for a while to get underneath the surface. But Jesus is referring to preservation, and he's referring to sacrifice. Um, he's talking in a Jewish context where fire and sacrifice and burnt offerings were a part of how you get preserved. Everyone, needs, everyone will be salted with fire. Jesus is bringing us in, and he loves to be cryptic and not say things incredibly directly. He's bringing us into how, at the very even beginning of the story, when the disciples say, he was driving out demons in your name, and then Jesus replies with two sentences that both say, in my name. This in his name thing is important, because it's in Jesus' name that, and in his sacrifice, that we are salted, that we are preserved that we are saved. The other phrase that's frequent in here is entering life. And then the third, it's entering life, entering life. And then the third time it's mentioned is entering the kingdom of God in verse 17. And I want you to just picture that you enter the kingdom or the palace of God. You enter into the gracious, loving abode of God in his name, in Jesus' name. Through this substitute, you don't arrive 
based on your, because you haven't been petty. And you've tidied up all your petty concerns and you don't have them anymore. You arrive and you, it's like, you know, it's almost like having a password, you know, at a secret party or something. You arrive and you give the name of Jesus and then the doors swing wide open. You know, that's, that's the approach of this passage. Everyone will be salted with fire. You know, Moses' Moses' statement is so wonderful. I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. This kind of sentiment is what Jesus wants his disciples to have. Look around. I wish everyone was, I wish everyone was just flowing in and out of the presence of God. I wish everyone. And eventually these disciples would see, these petty disciples, duh, disciples who got it all wrong would see as Pentecost came and as they had fire, tongues of fire, I don't really know what that was or what that looked like, but as they came on their heads and then there were people from all over the world, all over. Read Acts chapter 2, all these places are listed. And, and the salt of Jesus' death and resurrection goes out to all of them. The door swings wide open. Um, opening yesterday for the Pope in Philadelphia, there was a, there was a ga- big gathering, 1.5 million people, I guess, was what was predicted, and I didn't read the results of how many actually came, if it was more or less. But in Philadelphia, the Pope arrives for this big meeting, and they, and they, allowed, they had Aretha Franklin, right? She was singing, and then... Um, this com- comedian, Jim Gaffigan, was supposed to do a 20-minute set of comedies. And um, so I heard some interviews with him this week talking about this. You know, he talks about how his wife's a better Catholic than him. He says, she's a Shiite Catholic. And um, he says, I'm just a practicing Catholic, and my wife will tell you I need the practice. You know, he's got all these little jokes about his Catholicism. This is what he said, and it almost seemed to, to trip up the interviewer on Fresh Air this week. He said, he said, listen... I'm a terrible person. <laughs> he started that sentence. Listen, I'm a terrible person. I need the concept of mercy to have any sense of self-pride moving forward. And I thought, there it is. There it is. Let's pray. Dear God, we do need your mercy. And it's, it turns out the greatest leaders of your church of all times just drastically need your mercy as well. We're all wrapped up in petty concerns and we only look and we only come to you and we only find hope. And the tension in our shoulders and our neck is only relieved through the gift, the lavish gift of your mercy and your grace. Thank you for salting us with fire. Thank you that your son goes in our place on the cross and that the doors swing wide open to all that your spirit might rest on all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.